exploring the mysteries of life and the cosmos with an overwhelming desire to uncover buried truth, discovering whether or not human beings purposefully manipulated the world or something more spiritual has happened or is happening. Researching a wide range of topics such as conspiracies, religion, spirituality, science, health, and history, Apple of Perception delves into the beyond, where nothing is off-limits. This is Apple of Perception Podcast. If the world is an enigma, then everyone is either telling their own truths and or we're all pathological liars. Because everything is consciousness, choice dictates reality, and the truth is within. Welcome back to Apple of Perception Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Edward Finney. We're going to get right back into the reading of the book again. Apple of Perception, Part 2, Chapter 4, Tesseract. The greatest study mankind has ever delved into has been the search for God. It has been the motivation for the greatest accomplishments in all fields. No matter where man is in life, the idea of finding God keeps its allure. It is only during our misinterpretations of where God is that we find conflict. Throughout history, common man has found himself subject to be ruled over by an elite class of man. Whether it is divinely appointed rulers or successful businessmen, the struggle to the top has always required those on top to oppress those beneath them in order to raise them up. All the while those beneath cry out to God to help them better their situation they find themselves stuck in. Those without luck are left praying for the grace of something outside of themselves to come and save them. The effort of prayer is often fruitless, leaving one feeling forsaken and abandoned. It seems to most of us that a true spiritual experience is necessary to find peace and success in life, a possibility that usually appears so far away. This is due to misinterpretations of divine works. Perhaps there is an explanation for this debacle in the biblical name of God himself as to why this cycle is seldom broken. Jehovah, or Yahweh, also known as the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament of the Bible, is used as a whitewashed term that referred to the living God that dwelt inside many individuals. Yahweh is also referred to as Satan or the devil by others who consider themselves to be gods. It all focuses on the divine blueprint and how it is transposed through the lens of an individual. When one high priest disagrees with another high priest's perception of the greater good, or divine blueprint, they'll refer to each other as Satan. Please don't choke in disgust at this interpretation, as it in no way belittles the Almighty God. In fact, when this concept is properly understood, it further strengthens the individual's relationship with God. The Greek word Satan means adversary, and the title was used as a generic curse on anyone in opposition to one another. Jehovah frequently took this opposing position towards Jesus Christ. Jehovah, amongst others, remains guilty of fallible concepts that limit the mind of divine power within the physical world. 
Although Yahweh is recognized as the creator of the physical world and physical form of man, Jehovah is also recognized as the destroyer. This tetragrammaton takes up two parts of the Trimurti, which is the Hindu form of the Holy Trinity. Yahweh is the creator, as Brahma is, and Jehovah is destroyer, as Shiva is. He is the anthropomorphized concept of carnality and repeatedly acts as a conduit of and in opposition to the divine source. He balances the polarities brought on by the decisions of the individual within their passions. He may at some times be in opposition because it is his job to propose to us the lessons we need to learn to better ourselves. Jehovah is the giver of the commandments to Moses. In ancient Hebrew, Enoki Enki Iah is from heaven sent to earth and was given the connotation in ancient Hebrew to also mean I am. This is also referred to in the Bible as Yahweh or Jehovah the destroyer. The I am or carnal and separate sense of self removed from the divine, requiring sacrifices to feed it because it is sometimes referred to as the human body that requires food. Declaring itself in the Old Testament as the highest God with no others above it because it is blind to spirit and the divine. In truth, we are told in the New Testament that we are not under any laws other than what we accept and give worship to through our will. Jehovah is the ruler of the physical world and not inherently evil, as he is part of the Christian Holy Trinity. The quality of the concept Jehovah takes is purely subjective to the experience of an individual within the creation. He is the dictator of karma and the wheel of fortune itself. Jehovah is also the ego according to Freudian logic. Yet, Sigmund Freud takes a pathway to understanding by modifying the Holy Trinity to be parts of the physical mind, which is an absolute fallacy to spirituality. Freud introduced a concept that is guilty still of being materialistic. The id, ego, and superego were supposed to be parallel with ancient Trinitarian systems. We learn in the Old Testament how this logic is brought about through the mythos of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a concept of building a physical tower towards God. This conceptual tower was an amalgam of all the works of mankind. It comprised all the effort of thoughts, concepts, and teachings, and workings of mankind. It was an amalgam of an epitome of what man can forge within the creation. The tower is now as it always was, built upon the many sciences and teachings of the carnal reality of mankind. It has no spiritual foundation and is doomed to crumble and scatter the minds of mankind, just as it continues to do today. Separation is the key concept to the name. The letters YHWH in Yahweh can be arranged in 72 distinct arrangements. These are the 72 demons that Solomon sealed. 
the original 72 card tarot deck, the 72 transformations of the Monkey King, etc. The name Yahweh and its many configurations is testament to the divisions of conscious thought. Believers in the New Testament of the Bible are called Christians. Modern Christianity is based on what is now called Gnosticism. However, early Christians didn't refer to themselves as Gnostics. They were simply called Christian. They were the Essenes. They were not the first in history to achieve knowledge through introspection and communion with the true God within themselves. A Christian today is highly influenced by Roman Catholicism, an aberration of the original cause. The early Christians knew that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, that we do not need a man to teach us. Organized religions that dabble in spirituality are colleges that dabble in sciences, and any construct outside the mind that seeks God as a thing within the creation is comparable to that of the harlot that owns our hearts in the book of Revelation of the New Testament. The mythos of the New Testament portrays this fallacy as the Jezebel, or Babylon the Great, which rides the beast, which is the physical emanation of our spiritual chakra system. Separate aspects of the divine whole. The chakras represent churches within man that are ruled by seven demons that must be cleansed and replaced by seven angels of light via the Savior's grace, obtainable only by our consent to do so. The letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelations mirror Eastern traditional methods of cleansing the chakras and the body. It is a beautifully relevant myth with countless parallel concepts. This Savior in the Bible is Christ, hence Christianity, but the concept he taught is ancient and reborn in our era in this way. The prophecy that Jesus is a Nazarene from Nazareth is based on Matthew's total misunderstanding of a passage from Isaiah 11.1, where the Messiah is called Nazar, or branch. In other words, a branch from Jesse's father of David's stump. The lineage in the Bible that led to Jesus is recognized as one of royal blood. Calling Jesus a Nazorian is a title and reference to that fact. At least that's how many have looked at these references. In truth, the town of Nazareth was not founded until after the death of Jesus. Nazar in Hebrew was used many times in the Old Testament to mean to watch, observe, keep, guard, defend, preserve. Few times was it ever translated as branch or stump. It seems those translations may have always been in error, and the word only ever referred to one who kept their ways and observed their customs. This would eliminate any bloodline theory and would allow for any adopted or pupil in a way of life to earn the title Nazorian. The way of life for the man Jesus was that of the Essene priesthood, learned from his family and his own time in the temple. This interpretation allows for a major parallel for Jesus Christ 
through the many incarnations of Vishnu and the Bodhisattvas. The Bible records a period of time in the consciousness of man having to do with a particular pool of karma. Different cultures and religions throughout time that remain separate from that cause are not left forsaken. Each has been offered truth via a particular savior of their own accord. It is very possible that Jesus the Christ is another real and physical incarnation or prophet of the Egyptian sun god Ra, the Hindu Brahma, or the Buddhist Maitreya. Like Vishnu, Krishna, Hermes, Osiris, Horus, Mithras, Zoroaster, Pythagoras, Budai, Buddha, and countless others. Physical beings teaching mystical truths through allegory of the mythos. The wisdom they intended is a true understanding, often referred to as gnosis. It is a knowledge that cannot be transferred from person to person by any means within the creation. So it is taught through the presentation of allegory and myth to spark the understanding within the individual. A quote from John 10, 19-21, including 24-38. through 38. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, I and the Father are one. Again. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law. I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own, and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? I do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. End quote. The perfection of the cornerstone of understanding within the mind is the most pivotal concept that ancient Gnostics taught and were murdered for teaching. Those who seek to control others do not want this concept to be shared because it allows for true freedom and lack of dependencies upon the creation. That's why, we're, why we require this savior person. The opposition is where the term Satan is used again to represent this control through deception concept. The details of the specifics of the savior person don't actually matter enough to cause wars amongst mankind. The details have been altered and debated upon and usually changed on purpose to cause deception. It doesn't matter if these savior types were real people, but they most likely were. What really matters is what they were all trying to teach us. This gnosis 
granted via the teachings of the Savior, is what the carnal mind opposes, which is why in Gnostic tradition, Jehovah takes the role of the demiurge and foolish god known as Yaldabaoth. The deception of the details within creation is annoying. For example, the Holy Trinity comprises the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Spirit, the different conceptual understanding of ghost versus spirit, which stems from Latin to English translation of the Bible and the difference between the words sanctum versus sanctus. Well, sanctum suggests spirit residing within the even individual, sanctus suggests spirit being an outside source. This is why the Catholic Church used the term Holy Ghost, because it spoke of the divinity being found within, and ghost at that time was used in English to define such and was synonymous with sanctum, which was used biblically to describe the part of the Holy Trinity. Sanctus is used in the Latin Bible to refer to displaced spirits and demons. It is unsure whether or not the recent change to Holy Spirit was due to a purpose filled with deceit, or just because the English word ghost is changed to suggest a personified spirit outside the self. The journey from ancient Hebrew to Greek through Latin to English has become a complete nightmare. Translating truth through the many earthly and conceptual languages is incredibly difficult, which is why the mythos and initiation rituals of mysticism that aided in the teaching of Gnosis were invented in the first place. To understand the part Jehovah takes in the Christian Holy Trinity, one must understand all these things the conceptual understanding of the Old Testament God being both creator and destroyer, has sparked much confusion amongst the understanding of this trinity, confusion that the Hindu Trimurti shares as well. Jesus Christ was a physical human, so he indeed was the son of a man, so that he was also the son of Jehovah, the living God. Gnostics refer to Jehovah as the Demiurge, or lesser God. He is, as stated before, to be carnal and the epitome of physicality, being both its beginning and its end. He being not unlike the Hindu gods, Brahma and Shiva being the creator and destroyer, is not inherently evil. Jesus also referred to his Father in heaven. This is an entirely different concept from the concept of Jehovah in the Old Testament, because Jesus' Father in heaven was noted as being perfect a trait not belonging to the vengeful God of the Old Testament. It becomes clear that Jesus' Father in heaven is the divine source and true God of the Gnostics. This true God existed everywhere and nowhere, including in the hearts of all mankind. This unknown God was thought by the Gnostics to have no physical form, or did it communicate to man directly. Jesus spoke of heaven to be the true church of God and to reside within the heart of man. The Book of Enoch refers to this same concept as the girdle of heaven. This heaven, an unknown god, is not unlike the golden egg of Hinduism called the Brahman. It is sort of a cosmic egg that holds the universe within it, and yet exists within the universe. It is basically a tesseract. A tesseract in the study of geometry is a four-dimensional analog of a cube and is to the cube as a cube is to the square. This is the same teaching that sparked the concept of the New Age higher self 
or guardian angel, most of these concepts stemming from the ascension experience of Hermes Trismegistus in the Corpus Hermeticum. It also helps explain Plato's allegory of the cave, of which I will extrapolate upon later. The reference in geometry parallels and very well may explain the enigma of the Holy Trinity. The identity of the children of God, God's chosen people, and many other references throughout the Bible and other works throughout history that are now well worthy of a reread. It may just be the word Jehovah was used in reference to any physical being who in of himself obtained Gnosis, and through such alignment became a divine being. Harmonizing the concepts of the trinities within himself, and yet portraying a very confusing role in history for the rest of us to understand. This would be because a physical being who obtains Gnosis then can basically become a god. They perform magic and can manifest objects within the creation through act of will and act as one with the divine. Therefore, the physical father of Jesus Christ could very well be another human being, as the writer Origen suggests it to be. The Roman soldier Tiberius Julius Abdus Pantera, who was rumored to have had an affair with Mary. Due to the status of a Roman soldier at the time, it is reasonable that due to their level of learning that they would be initiates of the craft and aptly recognized as gods. Many believe that King Herod was Jesus' father. A BBC documentary claimed Jesus to be the Buddhist monk known as Issa. The details ultimately don't matter. As Jesus said, judge him for his works, not who he claims to be. The initiates of the craft, who were known as gods among men, went through some sort of ritual such as a transfiguration. This is similar to the apotheosis that was the achievement of Enoch in Genesis when he walked with God. It was thereafter referred to in Talmudic writings that Enoch became the Metatron, which was the power above the angels of God. This is also something Jesus referred to, man having the power to command both angels and demons. It is a power granted through understanding and the purifying of one's thoughts. The Hindi term Brahman has also been used to describe a person as well as cattle, not to be confused with the Brahma, the creator. This word in Hinduism has been used, like the term Jehovah, to allow a member of the highest caste or priesthood to be called Brahman. So we have a relative use of term overflow that suggests a physical human being could be referred to as Jehovah. As it is, most ancient cultures referred to their ruler as being God on earth. It would not be unlikely that Roman Caesars, wielding the caduceus rods of manipulation, had undergone gnosis, or at least were treated as such. This reality of a living God being in reference within the Bible to be an actual human being does not in any way lessen the quality of the writings. The concepts expressing the carnality of Jehovah are meant to be discovered. Of course, this was how the old world used to understand this. 
or at least the learned and initiated. The stories offered to the ignorant masses could have been the same old stories told over and over again. The dates of birth aligning with the zodiacs of the stars, procession of the equinoxes, and other cosmic forces just to excuse divinely appointed rulers being mortal men. Every ruler had a great tale of triumph to tell like the pulling of a sword out of a stone, an intangible and inarguable appointment of forces that places one man over the other. In this light, Prima Noctis would have been a blessing instead of a curse, imbuing those who practiced, participated in this ritual with the potential of a virgin birth and savior child. This would give the Nephilim of the Bible a very real origin story, and place in history and the world today. Nephilim may just be overprivileged children due to the success of their initiated father, and not necessarily wise themselves. They avoid the karmic returns of the sins of their fathers, and lack many lessons life has to offer if they don't openly pursue the life of truth for themselves. The Nephilim reflects the concept of the typical affluent teen. Unfortunately, due to the bloodlines of kings, we are often left with an affluent teen on the throne. The initiates of Gnosis give a much greater opportunity to, to their children in their spiritual life than those who are uninitiated because of their blood. The blood of a human being resonates at specific frequencies. Each DNA strand is like a barcode. The unique genetic structure of human beings sets their frequencies apart from one another. Since all of us put out energy on our own frequencies, one who shares the same blood as a god-king could be easily inspired, but they must make the choice to pursue it. The Tibetan monks know well of this concept of the body vibrating with energy, and it constantly putting it out into the world. They train themselves to think nothing but loving thoughts for a period of at least 13 years. Once completed, they can obtain the light body. The concept of love they identify with is beyond the polarity of what we know as love versus hate, and is more an acceptance of all things. Through their wisdom, they claim to have achieved supernatural abilities. There is an unofficial record of over 160,000 monks having obtained light body activation. They become physically lighter, survive impossible climates, press their hand and feet into solid rock, and many other feats man deems impossible in his fallen nature. There is also a step beyond light body called rainbow body, which some tales suggest is only obtainable upon physical death. The rainbow body is what the Buddhists identify with as having achieved true enlightenment. The amount of evidence for men claiming godhood is inarguable. A believer of the literal interpretation of the Bible may ask, why are there more monks obtaining light body than there are sealed living souls in the book of revelations of the Bible, the 144,000? It is probably because there are stages of this power. As Tibetan monks suggest, light body precedes rainbow body. Christ Jesus likely obtained light body during his transfiguration, 
and didn't achieve rainbow body until his ascension. The occurrences are aptly named and strictly differentiated by the Catholic Church. The transfiguration of Christ occurred on Mount Hermon when Moses and Elijah appeared and flanked Jesus during his transformation. The ascension of Christ is said to have occurred 40 days after his physical death. Like the Buddha, once enlightenment was obtained, his body disappeared from this physical plane. Though the pinnacle achievement of apotheosis seems to only occur after physical death, Christ did perform his miracles only after his transfiguration, just as a Buddhist monk can do after obtaining light body. The stages of the spiritual achievement suggest that rulers of men could have achieved the spiritual power, and in doing so, it had given them a valid excuse to claim themselves divinely appointed and god kings. Perhaps there is a reason why Hebrew ritual involves stating Hashem when coming across the Tetragrammaton within the Torah. The same groups of people that created the dreidel and continued to practice their faith through constant persecution have actually found a loophole in not worshipping the person sitting on the th a throne claiming godhood. Shem was given the connotation in ancient Hebrew as someone who had made a name for themselves. It referred to the lineage of Shem, son of Noah. Shem was also known as Melchizedek, which literally meant king of righteousness. Saying Hashem instead of a name for the divine removes worship from it, since Hashem translates to the name, or one that has made a name for themselves. It removes any authoritative title that may have been allocated to the person the text refers. It seems the makers of this tradition knew what they were doing when they replaced all the many names for God in the Torah with Hashem. The Israelites seemed to live up to their namesake as being against the elites, as Israelites means Israelites. Once the dots are connected, we have a really big choice to make. As it seems, the story all spirituality tells us is one of men becoming gods on earth. We have the choice now of believing in the possibility and then connecting the dots throughout known history to decipher the haves and the have-nots, or not believing in spirituality at all. It may be, the Sigmund, be that uh, Sigmund Freud was the one that deciphered the objective part of this ancient concept, where the light is and where the darkness dwells becomes a reality of choice. Does one worship the cold, hard earth as an ultimate reality and know it to be physical, finite, and existing as a tiny speck in the vastness of the universe? Or is there really something deeper in spirit that gives rise to it all? If spirit is a real thing, then those that have experienced Gnosis with spiritual ascension and connection with the higher power, have the ability to rule over mankind for the greater good. It's either that or nihilism. There's not really a middle ground there unless you want to keep the wool over your eyes. 
Even the atheist who practices scientism eventually can experience gnosis when they realize all perceived physical matter is only a portion of light projected from another dimension. The Maya of Hinduism is a truth offered even to sci-fi enthusiasts and fans of the Matrix concept. Our physical reality is simply a projection of light on a specific density or bandwidth. Surely nihilism cannot ensue when that realization has been made. As Arthur Conan Doyle put it, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. This then further concludes, through logical deduction, that the concept of God must exist. God is the omnipresence of conscious energy that fills all of existence. However, believing in this fact blindly usually puts one in service to the God of this world, a power outside oneself that is nigh impossible to commune with when recognized as an outside source. This fallacy leads the uninitiated to blindly educate themselves in their fruitless studies. They build their towers of logic and deduce that science answers all the enigmas of our physical world. This dead-end scientism is equivocal to nihilism. The deductive reasoning resolves in an atheistic mindset due to the hidden concepts of gnosis. It is when one subscribes to chaos instead of understanding that consciousness permeates all. Those that choose to dwell in this limited mindset surrender themselves to the current paradigm of their world. They are as prisoners in the allegory of Plato's cave. This tale mirrors that of the geometry concept of the Tesseract. The allegory puts forth a theory concerning human perception, and it goes as such. There being three prisoners in a cave tied to rocks, arms and legs bound, and head tied so that they can only look at the stone wall in front of them. They have been in this position since birth, and never knew anything else. Behind them is fire, between them is a raised walkway. People that are outside the cave walk along the walkway carrying things on their head, including animals, plants, wood, and stone. In the point of view of the prisoner, they only see the shadows and have never seen the real objects before. The prisoners instead believe the shadows to be what is real. The prisoners play a game of guessing which shadow will appear next. When one correctly guesses, the others praise him and call him master. Eventually, one of the prisoners escapes and leaves the cave. He is shocked at the world and struggles to believe it. He soon comes to realize that his former view of reality is wrong. He goes on a journey and discovers beauty and meaning and learns that his former life and the guessing game they played to be useless. Later he returns to the cave to inform his once fellow prisoners of his findings. They do not believe him and threaten to kill him if he attempts to set them free.
This allegory accurately describes the struggle of one who has experienced Gnosis and their relationship with those who have not. Though it may be the desire to share this philosophical and spiritual truth with everyone, we quickly learn that it cannot be shared through the relaying of empirical evidence. It sadly becomes apparent that it comes down to a choice that every individual makes to free themselves. It is the divine decree of the prime directive being enforced. Spiritual understanding only comes to those who ask for it and seek it out with the intention of wanting to understand. In Freemasonry, this is the request for light. The wisdom offered after doing so literally frees the initiate from being a prisoner in the allegorical cave. For those who have experienced Gnosis, they find it easy to rule over those who know it not. After all, what easier cattle could there be to herd than ones who enslaves themselves? It would truly be a wonder if we were all to learn that within us resides an eternal spirit imprisoned inside the allegorical cave of our own mind. We must realize that the belief for every action there must be an equal and opposite reaction is only true when one cannot transmute conscious energy via a perfected constitution. As Christ always said, we have to learn to forgive. And as the Tibetan monks say, we have to learn to accept all things. The higher point of view is the pathway to overcoming duality. Through this gnosis, we receive divine grace and are saved from the reaping the detriments of karma and are no longer left to spin upon the wheel of fortune. Finding the middle ground between the passions is the key. Set between the passions of the evangelist and the baptist. Freemasons operate within this stoic mindset, the noble eightfold path of moderation between the extremes of self-mortification and sensual indulgence is the same. It is the identifying of polarized concepts and learning not to dwell on either side of them. It is also the knowing that duality exists in order to teach us a lesson. And it is to use this understanding to help bring balance to the lives of others. That does it for Tesseract. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the next time we'll be getting into the next chapter, part two, chapter five, Rebirth. Of course, we'll be talking about Hermetic Rebirth, which is the mystical initiation of the spiritually dead into a spiritual life. Remember, you can support this program by purchasing a copy of Apple of Perception by J.E. Vinay. That's V-E-N-N-E. It is available on Kindle and paperback through Amazon. Until next time, I am Joseph Edward Vinay. Take it easy and be excellent to each other.